We're going to continue the series we started, as we said, on great songs in the Bible. We've only done one. We were looking at Exodus chapter 15, the song of the sea. And we're going to come to look at uh, this song of Moses. Um, What we need to do, first of all, is read it together. We read from Revelation chapter 15 already. But I want us just to pause and read this chapter first. And uh, and then we're going to get uh, down to business. Uh, We've got a lot to get through, so I need to get my skates on as well. But we're going to break in in the very last verse of chapter 31. It's page 210 in the Church Bibles. And the heading, as you can see here, is the Song of Moses. And uh, verse 30 says this, let's hear God's word. And Moses recited the words of this song from the beginning to the end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. To their shame they are no longer his children but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord? O foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him. In a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest grains of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his saviour. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. 
The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realms of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and expend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street the sword will make them childless. In their homes terror will reign. Young men and young women will perish, infants and grey-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy lest the adversary misunderstand and say our hand has triumphed the Lord has not done all this they are a nation without sense there is no discernment in them if only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be how could one man chase a thousand or two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them unless the Lord had given them up for their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents and deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free, he will say, Now, where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he there is no God besides me I put to death and I bring life I've wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever while I, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Moses came with Joshua son of Nun and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children 
to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Oh man. Wow. What a chapter. When I uh, came to this chapter during the week, I thought, what on earth have I done? Starting this series on great songs in the Bible. How on earth are we going to get anything from a chapter like this? But as I've been preparing, I cannot tell you how much this has gripped and stirred my own heart. And I hope uh, this morning that... um, we can glean a great deal from it. The, cha- the challenge is where to start, isn't it? Where, where do you start? <clears throat> It'd be really great if you could keep your Bible open as we uh, try and skip through this. Um, hopefully reasonably quickly. I think the first thing we need to do is just get the history and the geography right here and just so we can get a sense of where we are in history. So let me just say this first. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, you may know, are known by Jewish people as the Torah. Sometimes people refer to them as the Pentateuch, because I think Pentagon, it's uh, the word for five. So the Pentateuch is a very important part of the Bible. And these books were largely written by Moses, and tell the story of uh, creation and the, and the birth of the Israelite nation. But Deuteronomy is a very significant book. and uh, So let me just take a moment to explain why. All of the other books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, tell the story of the Jewish people really. They are, they are narrative books. Um, we begin in Genesis with Abraham, one man travelling at God's call from the very far Middle East to to the land that would later become the promised land where Israel would live and how Abraham has uh, the son of the promise, Isaac Jacob and Esau Jacob has 12 sons, one of them is Joseph and you know the story of how this growing family go down to Egypt in Joseph's time uh, in a time of famine and uh, this uh, fledgling family grew over a period of over 400 years in Egypt and then we're told the story of how Moses in Exodus uh, brings these people out of Egypt and through the desert of Sinai and into Moab and eventually we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy where God's people are on the east side of Jordan they're on the brink of the promised land But when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, it isn't narrative history. It's not the giving of laws. But here is a whole nation of people assembled together, God's special people, on the brink of their destiny, which is to come into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is a significant book here because Moses now is an old man. And the book of Deuteronomy really is Moses preaching 
to God's people as they're on the brink of going to the promised land. So Deuteronomy is not a history book. It is really a, it's a sermon. It's actually a series of sermons as Moses gathers the people together and preaches to them. And so Deuteronomy, in a very special way, is not a narrative, but here's a man's heart being revealed. Moses is a shepherd, a pastor, a leader. His heart goes out to his people and under God's authority he preaches to them. And that's a helpful way I think to see the book of Deuteronomy. Perhaps one day we'll study it a bit more. But our focus today is on the very end of the book where Moses teaches the people a song. I've no idea what the tune is. And even if we did know the tune it probably wouldn't fit the English because it was written in Hebrew originally. But clearly what Moses is doing here is teaching them something by way of a song that they will never ever forget. This is important. You, you, you read that with me. These are not just idle words. I want you to remember this, Moses is saying. His heart is engaged. So here we are, 1500 or so BC, with the Israelite nation on the east of Jordan. And Moses pouring out his heart to them like a father, a shepherd, a prophet. This is some of the most ancient and inspired poetry that we have in existence. It's eloquent and profound. And I hope that we'll see just how deeply relevant it is to us. The whole nation are here. We read that in in, uh, verse 30 of uh, chapter 31. And... um, and, and, and Moses is wanting them to teach their children these things and to remember them. Now, that's the, that's the background then. That just sets the scene. The, uh, the issue is, and I don't know if this struck you as you read it, it's, it struck me as I read it, that there are some problems here. And the, and the problem partly is that Moses begins so beautifully and then proceeds to just smack them between the eyes. Did that strike you as you read it? Look look with me again at verses uh, 1 and and particularly 2. Moses said, Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. It's beautiful. The language that he uses is, this, this is like a refreshing, clean, beautiful, pure shower to refresh you and to help you to grow and then you get to verse 5 and he just smacks them between the eyes it starts so gently so beautifully so eloquently and then he says they're corrupt warped crooked foolish unwise How on earth is that like a refreshing cool shower? That that doesn't sound like a refreshing cool shower to me. And it gets even worse when you get down to verse 23. This is God speaking. I will expend my arrows against them. You are in for it. (laughs) I'm going to... All my arrows... I'm going I'm, I'm to empty my quiver right on the bullseye that is ye. 
How, is that, how on earth is that a refreshing shower? How on earth is like that? The dew descending on new grass. Can you see the problem there? He starts beautifully, but ends up being brutal. So Moses lost the plot here. So that's my first question for you. Why the brutality? How on earth can Moses say what he says in verse 3 and then fill the whole chapter, it seems, with God raging against his own people? And the, un- the underlying question is, and th- th- just to bring this up to date, how can the fact that God judges his people possibly be good news? Why is this something that they not only need to know, but should actually be glad about? God's judgments seem brutal. That that is a big problem in this chapter. And I hope that struck you as you read it. But that's not all. There's another problem here. This actually is not just Moses' song. We, we believe that this is God's word. But here in this specific case, we know it's God's word because in the previous chapter, God gives Moses the lyrics. He's not just making this song up as a nice song. Just look with me in the previous chapter at verse 15. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses... You are going to rest with your fathers. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on on that day they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. Now this is hard. Not only did God's judgment seem brutal, but the question that strikes me as I read those verses is, Did they have any choice in this? That seems pretty fatalistic to me. God tells Moses, I want you to teach them this song because they're going to go astray. They're going to forsake me. Could not the children of Israel say one day, it was always going to happen this way. God had planned it this way. It's all predetermined. So not only in this chapter did God's judgment seem brutal, but I think the second problem, and it's a deep problem, is that life seems fatalistic. How on earth can that be like a refreshing shower? What on earth is Moses on about? How is it that when he gets to the end of the song, he says, Rejoice, O nations. What about? God's judgments are brutal, and you're all going to be forsaking me. Why is that something to rejoice about? That sounds like bad news, not good news. Are you with me? You've got this is an incredible chapter. 
Let's cut right to the chase here then. I want you to see how relevant this is theologically because what you think about God will shape how you live. You can, if you like, worship a God of your own imagination. Many people do. But the important thing is surely to bring our thinking in line with how God has revealed himself. And God is saying some very profound things here. So, for example, you may say, in your life, if God judges people like this, I don't want anything to do with them. I prefer love. And I want everything to be nice. This God, I don't want anything to do with them. Well, you, you could say that. But also, you might be the kind of person who is secretly thinking, if God's already decided what's going to happen, there's no point even listening anyway. It's all whatever will be, will be. God seems brutal, life seems fatalistic and hopeless because it's predetermined. If that's how you think, how on earth can you agree with what Moses goes on to say in verses 3 and 4? Just look with me here. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. That is really talking about the reputation of God. Praising the greatness of God. He's described here as the rock. What an interesting word. This whole chapter is full of rocks. I don't know if you noticed that. All the way through, God is described as the rock. It speaks of stability and strength. It speaks of foundation. It speaks of a solid base. It speaks of origins. God is the fountain, the source, the ground, the foundation of everything else that exists. There is no reality that exists that does not find its meaning in him. God is not a side issue. He is the eternal rock. Moses says his ways are perfect and all his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. He is upright and just. What Moses is saying here is that God is utterly blameless and utterly good and utterly great. There is nothing you can say that will malign his great name. His character, his words, his ways, his style and his substance, everything about God is utterly right. There is no shadow of darkness in him. Just as an aside here, when you say it's not fair, like my children sometimes say, not fair, Dad. When you say it's not fair, be very, very careful that there is not lurking somewhere hidden in your heart some resentment towards God. It is not wrong to feel upset, confused, hurt, but be very, very careful that you do not attribute blame to the Lord God, the rock. Well, let's get back to our apparent difficulties, brutality and fatalism. The problem here, I suppose, is what a perspective, isn't it? We, we, the, the problem we often have as human beings is we begin with ourselves and we judge everything else 
based on what we think. But the Bible doesn't begin with us. It begins with God and his perspective. And when you begin with God and the reality of what Moses says here about his greatness and goodness, you can only ask why is it then that God judges sin so decisively and apparently brutally? And how can we escape from under this apparent sense of fatalism? Well, we need to write along. We haven't got time to expound the whole chapter verse by verse, but I want you to see certain twos here that I really hope will help all of us with these big questions. So keep that idea of brutality and fatalism in mind, and we'll, we'll try and skip through what Moses says here and try and build up some answers. And by the time we get to the end, we're going to end with Jesus, because ultimately it's all about him. You've heard me say that millions of times. It's true here. So, first of all, I want you to notice the beginning of verse 7, Moses uses the word remember. So, let's think firstly, under this heading, in this song, Moses says to them, remember who you are. Really, I thought afterwards, this title should have been, remember what God has done for you. Remember who you are because of the way God has blessed you. And let me just skip through these verses and give you four things. Number one, God's purposes in history have been designed with you specifically in mind. Um, Verse 8, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. That's a difficult verse to translate, but the big point that's being made there is that when God, when God determined in his wisdom for nations to live here and here and here and here, he had you in his mind when he planned that. God's purposes in history have been specifically relevant to bringing you specifically to this place on this day. He has planned all of history for you, personally and specifically. I think this is why Moses uses the very unusual name for God, the Most High. That isn't a common name. But he's trying to give them a sense that this is the sovereign Lord who is eternal and who governs the whole of history according to his purposes. And he's done it all with you in mind. In the New Testament, Paul went to Athens and he spoke to some very clever men. And he said a very similar thing to what Moses says there. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he says, From one man he made all nations of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Life is not happening by chance. God is on the throne and he determines where people live when they're born when they die and Moses' point here in verse 8 is God has done all of that determining with you specifically in mind more than that God's heart is thrilled that you are his special people just look at verse 9 Moses says for the Lord's portion is his people I was wondering, this, this is an amazing thing for God to say. Sometimes you can read the Bible and skip over a verse like that. 
What a wealth of richness there is in this verse. On a Friday night, you know, most of you, that we like to have a lot of family meal. And it's a joy to sit down at the end of the week for our steak and coma night. You, you know how it works. Some of us like steak, some of us like coma. So, Jai's a little bit on the fence, but he leans more towards a coma than a steak. And uh, what a joy it is to sit down on a, on a, at the end of a week with all your family and tuck into your portion. It makes me feel happy just thinking about that. Juicy, nice piece of steak, some nice chips, plenty of salt in them. It's bad for my blood pressure, but they do taste nice. And uh, we sit down there, and it's a joy. God is saying to them, You are my portion. You are the thing that makes my heart rejoice. You are dear to me and special to me. I love you. You are mine and I am yours. I love to see my people progressing and their joy and peace. This is God's portion. This is what full... God doesn't need anything. It's amazing language for God to use, isn't it? That God has things that make him happy. Do you know what makes God happy? His own dear special people. Not only has he arranged everything for them, but he loves them and delights in them. Thirdly, God's care for you includes the minutest details. And let's just look at verse, um, verse 10. In a desert land he found him. Now, I don't want you to read that verse and think that God was wandering around in the desert with his hands in his pockets, kicking a tin can around, and he suddenly stumbled across his people. That isn't, God found them because he was looking for them. They're precious to him. And where were they when he found them? They were nothing. They were in a barren, howling waste. And what did he do? He shielded them and cared for them. He cared for them physically. He led them all the way through the mountainous desert of Sinai. Uphill and down dale, protecting them from their enemies. Protecting them from the wilds. But he led them spiritually, didn't he? In the desert, he revealed himself to them as their God. He gave them his commands and laws. This is very significant, you know. Think about this. In this howling, barren wilderness, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Every civilized country in the world basically bases their laws on what God gave them in the desert. Beautiful, right laws given to these special dear people. And everyone in all the world testifies to the fact that where these laws are honoured, people live in peace and civilizations prosper. Is that not so? He did it for them. And look at what he says in the next verse. He guarded you as the apple of his eye. I was looking up what that phrase meant. We know what it means, but the apple apparently is the little hole in the eye, the pupil that the light goes in through. It's the most important and precious part of the eye. You know what it's like if you're doing something and something flies up. And what's the first thing you do? Instinctively, your hand goes up to cover your eye because it's precious. The apple of your eye. What an amazing language for God to use. You are like the apple of my eye. When something rises up to touch you, my hand instinctively goes up to protect you. I care for you and love you. When someone touches you, it's like they're poking me in the eye. He couldn't use language greater than that, could he? It's eloquent. 
I'll protect you as if you were my own fragile eyes. And then the imagery of an eagle. Look at verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. When God came to them in Egypt, the language here is like they were in the nest. Fledgling nation. And the eagle swoops down and stirs them out of the nest, out of Egypt. And then flies under them and carries his young on his great strong winds. What an imagery God uses to talk about his love for his people. This is what God did for them. He came to Egypt and turfed them out of their nest. But an eagle doesn't come down and grab his babies with his claws. He comes down to them gently and flies underneath them. And Moses says, the Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. It was the Lord all along, calling them, loving them, arranging history for them in the minutest details. It wasn't some pathetic idol. The Lord God, the rock, is their God. Well, three things would be enough, but there's a fourth. God promises them a glorious hope. Verse 13, and following really are prophetic words. They haven't reached the promised land yet, but he made them ride on the heights of the land. There's no mountain stronghold in this nation that you are going to go into that you will not be able to claim as your own. I'll feed you with the fruit of the fields. And verse 13, the second half of it, God's using paradoxical language. How do you get honey from a rock or oil from a frantic crack? What God's saying is, even the hard things will be easy because I am with you. Even the hard things in nature will become a blessing to you because I'm your rock and father. I will bless you every step of the way. No enemy will withstand you. Can you see how God piles up the evidence of his loving care for them, his dear people? God is saying to them in this song, you are mine and I'm yours. Everything that I have, I give to you. Nothing will harm you when you are in my care. Depend upon me and I will not fail you. It all emphasises just how awesomely good God has been to them. Amazing verses. And then what happens next? Well, let's come to verse 15. Moses uses a very unusual name for Israel, the name Jeshurun. If you look in the footnote, Jeshurun means the upright one. If any nation should be upright, is it not this one? God is their rock. Jeshurun, the upright one. Grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek and abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his saviour. The imagery that Moses uses is that it's like God found a mangy horse in a field and brought it into his stable 
He cared for it like a caring vet. Fed it. And as the horse got better, it thought, I'm just going to kick the vet in the face and run off. That's the imagery that God uses here. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God. I'd love to dwell on that verse with you. Verse 18, you deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. What God is teaching them through Moses here is something that I don't want you to forget either. That sin is not a little thing. Can you get how profound this is and how criminal their behaviour is? Sin is like treason of the worst kind. It is like a kind of adultery. It is abominable and wicked to kick God in the face and run away. God has done nothing wrong. He has lavished his care upon them and they've gone. I could do better somewhere else. God sees it and notes it and it rightly makes him angry. (coughs) And the reality is, God says it in verse 20, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be. What will their end be? How can you kick God in the face and think that's okay? How can you think you're going to find something better than him? How can you think that you're going to substitute a foreign idol for him? It is treason. And God says, if if that's what you want to do, I will give you what you want. And I've got to say to you, the worst judgment that God can make is to give you what you want. And it turns into utter devastation. And when God says, we touched on it briefly, when God says, I will empty all of my arrows, in modern language you would say, it's like a gunman saying, I'm going to empty all my bullets on you. Famine, plague, pestilence, wild animals, military terrors, they'll become useless and worthless and no one will even remember them. What an awful awful and why are God's judgments so brutal why, why do they seem so hard for us to grasp I've got, the reason is that sin is treacherous when we struggle with God's judgment part of the reason we struggle is because we don't realise how serious a thing it is to kick God in the face and choose something else rather than him from his perspective And his perspective is the one that really counts. That is real wickedness. Now God holds back. He holds back for two reasons. He says he holds back because he doesn't want their enemies to misunderstand and say, are these not God's people? Has God forgotten to look after them? Is God too weak to help them? Maybe our gods are more powerful than their God because we've beaten them. So God holds back for the sake of his own reputation. But he holds back also to give them room to repent. Just look with me at verse 36. 
The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free, he will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. There is a sense in which this is not final judgment. These are judgments that are designed to warn them and help them to see that if they persist in this kind of stubborn, stupid rebellion, their end will be far worse than these judgments. This is God warning them, having compassion on them, so that they will turn around and come back to him. And that's exactly what he says in verse 39. See now that I myself am he. There's no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I've wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I love um, the way that God speaks of his judgments and his mercy in the same verse there. God is the only judge and the only saviour. Both things are true of him. He will punish the wicked, but he can heal the broken. He is mighty to judge and mighty to save. So the answer to our questions then, God's judgments are awesome and severe because sin is horrible and treasonable. And we need to settle it in our minds. That God's anger is not a sign that he is flawed like some kind of tyrannical dictator. His judgments are righteous and they are a sign that we are flawed. But could they have helped it? Is this chapter not just fatalistic? Well, I just want to let me just deal with that question very quickly. There are clues all over the Bible that warnings like this are genuinely warnings. God is lovingly and genuinely telling them that forsaking him is a sure road to misery. One example, if you, if you make your notes, make a note of this reference. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 to 10. Let me read it to you. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. In other words, there are times when God says, this is what is going to happen to you. But if the response to that is one of repentance and turning back to God, those things won't necessarily happen. That's clear, and there's lots of clues to that. Which we could spend a whole sermon talking about that principle so God announces judgment this is what will happen to you this is prophetic but if you respond in repentance God will reconsider and relent and turn from his original plans and that's what's happening here the reality is that it magnifies their guilt even more though doesn't it because even the fact that God has warned them doesn't stop them God has done everything well. He's even told them what will happen. And the fatalism here then is not so much that God has predetermined what will happen, but that human nature is so corrupt and so fallen that even in the face of such clear, loving, deliberate warning, they still stubbornly go their own way. 
And what that means really is that these warnings are fulfilled for the stubborn and unrepentant heart. The fact is that God loved them and they rebelled against them. And the warning is plain. And they're responsible to respond to that. The underlying truth here is that God is good and we are not. And what is fatalistic here is not that God has decided what will happen beforehand, but even when everything has been done, with their most highest blessing in mind, they still choose to abandon God. And it teaches us something about the total corruption of our own human nature. I, I, don't, I, I don't think these biblical ideas are popular, but I hope you can see what Moses is doing here is magnifying the goodness of God and showing them how utterly broken and fallen they are outside of him. So our question is, as we close, what, what hope do we have then? So let's, um, let's draw to a close very quickly. Jesus isn't mentioned in this passage. This is 1500 BC after all. But God is unfolding his character and purposes here. And the song ends very remarkably. And I'm sure you'll agree. Verse 43. I think the word rejoice on the face of it seems to be quite an inappropriate word. Rejoice and be glad. What on earth are you talking about Moses? You've just slam dunked us. And you want us to be glad. Rejoice O nations with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies. And make atonement for his land and his people. Let me, let me just build it up this way. Can you, can you see parallels here with Adam, the first man? Here's a little picture of Adam, just to help you. <laughs> this is what I can see in my mind's eye. Adam, the first man, the original upright man. And all the things that were said about Israel were true of him too. All of history is for him. It thrills God's heart to be in a relationship with him. God's care for him concerns the minutest details. And he promises him a glorious future. What does Adam do? He kicks God in the face and runs the other way. And fails spectacularly. We could personify Israel corporately just like Adam. Here in this chapter, God is saying, don't forsake the rock, your father. If you do, you will die. And what does Israel do? But kicks God in the face and runs the other way. Do you know what's most humbling here? That I can see myself here too. Created by God, but fallen and broken, corrupted. And I've got to tell you, I'm sorry to have to say this, but I too have failed spectacularly to be upright. But there is